Nomine Patris et Fidi Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Deo, pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fidi Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Brethren Christ, laudetu Jesus Christus. It's secular. This is Timothy Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. This is the Terror of Demons morning show reclaiming <clears throat> traditional Catholic masculinity. Joined as always by co-host Kennedy Hall. How you doing, brother? Wonderful. How are you? Jesus is King. Once again, Terror of Demons, the book. Get it for yourself. Get it for your spouse. It, uh, ladies, uh, get it for uh, your nephew. Buy it. Disseminate it. That is what we're here about. That the men of God can arise because we need a new crusade, uh, newsflash, Deus Volt, <laughs> and we're going to be addressing that in time, uh, as as we go. But the first crusade, the very the most important crusade, has been missed, and that's that was my call to action a couple weeks ago. Is that the most most important crusade, the fundamental crusade, is against the world of flesh and the devil. And people have ignored the most important crusade and they've gone after the enemies according to the flesh and they've destroyed each other, which is what always happens when you when you miss that most important forget about the devil, bad things happen. So this this show is about the fact that uh well I'm gonna read that verse in a second, but we're gonna talk about an important text from our Lord Jesus Christ, the King which gives us a very, very crucial point, which is one of the most fundamentally missed things that we've missed in our society. But before we do that, I want to welcome, welcome everyone to Sexagesima Week. And we've got a number of excellent uh, feast days this week. Once we, we have um, two wonderful feast days, especially for African Catholics, we've got St. Josephine Bakita, a, a freed slave who became an Italian, I believe a nun uh, in Italy, um, but uh, she died in 1947. Great story. It, and also Fridays, the uh, seven holy founders of the Holy Servite, which I believe was one of the uh, anti-slave trade. There was many different orders which was trying to work against the Mohammedan slave trade, going off and, and um, ransoming captives, um, giving their lives. Some orders had rules where the, the monks would have to give up their life for the sake of a slave who had been captive to give, give them freedom. So it was, it was a great effort that is uh, missed in the Marxist narrative of, of slavery. But then we have uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria tomorrow, great defender of the doctrine of the Theotokos, the throne of the mother of God. We have St. Scholastic on Wednesday, the sister of St. Benedict. Um, and uh, our, also our Lady of Lourdes. I was I always mm-hmm. pronounce that wrong. I, my French is not good enough to pronounce Lorda, but uh, Lourdes, Lourdes, Lourdes. I, uh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, Lourdes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very interesting because they say that Lorda was the name. I believe it was the name of the Moha- one of the Mohammedans who converted because they were left over in southern uh, France after Charles Martel beat them in tour, which is more in central France, but there were, there were Mohammedans in central France who were finally beaten back by Charlemagne. And they say that there's a connection um, 
oral tradition relates, but it's difficult to pin that down historically. But anyhow, uh, a wonderful feast, again, of Our Lady in the modern times, uh, which was against all sorts of things in the 19th century, which we've covered on this channel. But let's get into our topic. Um, fasting. Fasting. Um, let me just read this and, and have your comments, Kennedy. It was your idea to use this verse, which I thought was such a great idea. Um, because the, the verse that we are basing this on is Matthew 17, 21, which states this. Let me just read this passage because it's very, it's, it's a wonderful. Um, this is right after the transfiguration and our Lord comes down with Peter, James, and John. And let me just read this whole patch as, uh, if I can find it. And I brought him to the disciple. So basically this, this father comes to Jesus and he says, I brought my son who's a, who was possessed by a demon. Your disciples couldn't cast him out. So they're trying to cast out this demon and they can't do it. Now, verse 16 says this. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And the father said, the reason he said this was to suffer with them, to know their own pain, uh, to say, how, how long has he been there? Uh, so Jesus rebuked him and the devil went out of him. The child was cured from that hour. Then came the disciples of Jesus secretly. And they said, why could we not cast him out? So they were trying to cast out the demon. Why couldn't they cast him out? And our Lord gives the answer. Nine, verse 19, um, because of your unbelief, this kind is not cast out, but by prayer and fasting. So he identifies the unbelief as the, sort of the central cause, but he also says prayer and fasting. And we're, we're pointing out the fact that fasting is identified by our Lord as uh, taking out this kind of demon. So there's a particular kind of demon that does not come out except by adding fasting. Obviously, they must have been praying. They believed a little bit. They didn't believe enough. But they also weren't fasting. So, Kennedy, your comments on fasting and demons? Yeah. Uh, well, like our Lord says it, there's only there's certain demons that only come out by fasting. I assume that also means not fasting on both on both um, on behalf of both, because I know if you talk to exorcists, that they'll tell. Well, first of all, an exorcist to be successful, he himself has to actually have piety and a holiness to him, um, because partly there's always the part where christ talks about the belief okay so if he really believes he's going to live in a way that's that commensurate with that um <clears throat> also from a perspective of someone who's working in deliverance especially an exorcist he himself has to not be easily tempted which means he's going to have to have his virtue pretty strong which fasting is going to be a part of that and then the person who is being exercised has to fast and um the great exorcists will tell you that, you know, it's, this is why back in the day when basically Catholics, generally speaking, participated in stronger fasting norms and norms of piety, exorcists wouldn't have to do as many sessions in order for demons to be finally alleviated from the person. But now something that might take a couple sessions, 60, 70 years ago can take, you know, years at this point. Um, so Father Ripperger and others have adopted a program where they actually put the person the possessed or oppressed person, they put them on like a month long regimen that requires a strict regimen of fasting and prayer, like prayer and fasting, just like that. Um, I think they have to read the mass, like read the missal every day, only listen to Gregorian chant, if anything, 
uh, I think they have to read the Bible every day, pray the rosary every day, pray the Angelus like at six, twelve, and six regularly. There's just some various things that they have to do, and the person has to fast. Um, and they say that by the time the month is up, a lot of the time the person is already alleviated from the problem anyway. Because again, demons come up by prayer and fasting. And then here's some perspective of, of um, you know, we just think. Um, you know, I'm not even getting to the point of exorcism, which is fortunately rare compared to other things. You know, but when somebody's fasting, um, the world of flesh and the devil are the three main ways that we fall. So being attached to the world and the flesh, how you leaving that? The primary means by that is fasting. Um, it's a funny thing. Food is a funny thing because you need to eat it every day, generally speaking. Um, and if you don't, it affects you, but somehow you can still survive and people can thrive with very little. So uh, it is an ultimate test of, of virtue if you can fast and the devil hates virtue. So I think it's pretty simple. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kennedy. Sorry about the audio. Was the audio uh, garbled at all on your end, Kennedy? Or did you hear anything? I, I was uh, having issues. I had a little bit of issues with my system. So I apologize if that uh, doesn't go away. Um, yeah, the... I heard you. Heard would, fine, okay, good. Um, yeah, there's an interesting point that St. Thomas makes in that he says that wisdom is the perfection. It's the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is the perfection of charity. And it is the contemplation of God himself, which then the Logos disseminates, you know, it's wisdom himself, wisdom himself, which obviously brings down to everything else. But he says the opposite of wisdom is folly. And folly comes directly from lust. Mm -hmm. And this is from the teaching going back to St. Gregory the Great. And we see that in the fathers identified the fact that when a man sins, according to the flesh, it, it is it is such a such a deep darkening effect on his intellect mm -hmm. and it seems to me kennedy what what do you think do you think that the demons use the sins of the flesh more than any other aspect of temptation or maybe any other seven deadly sin is that kind of the main avenue what do you think yeah probably um i mean i think so from just what you said but but you know when i think about like imagine a scenario here for a second okay Obviously, all sin is bad, obviously, but, you know, think about like a young man who comes from a terrible home or something like that, and he gets into petty crime or something, you know, he robs a convenience store. Obviously, it's a, it's mortally sinful to do that, but from a perspective of understanding the logic of why a man would do something like that, you can see the utility in it from a survival perspective. Obviously, it's evil, but there's not a. I guess it's less of an evil in a sense, okay. But 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 a man who, you can almost sympathize is what I'm trying to say. You can say, okay, kid grows up in a bad home. Does that's wrong? Can't do that. But you get why someone got there, and as again, you can almost sympathize. But sins against the flesh—they're just totally useless sins. Like there's no, there's not even a natural utility to it in the sense of something is gained for the thriving or surviving of a person. It's, it's, it's a, it's completely pride, you know, um, it's completely pride. I mean, it's, 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 it's disordered. It's, it's, um, 
abusive to oneself and um it's narcissistic i mean it's all the way through it's 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 again there's no there's not even any natural utility okay other than pure animal exactly it's just no rational there's no rationality to it it's it's almost almost unhuman in a sense yeah i mean it's like yeah it's a dog yeah doing something to a pillow in the living room you know like it's it's there's nothing to it that's rational right right um so yeah, of course the it's going to be something that the devil's going to use because you're a beast. You know? Yeah, you're you're, you're like the swine that 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 Christ casts the demons into. Right. That's that sounds harsh, but that's Yeah, true. that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, so. it seems to be I know that um our, I mean our lady of Fatima <laughs> says that um what what does she say? She says the no more more, more people go to hell due than, to sins of the flesh. The flesh than for another reason. Right. And and um a little over a hundred years earlier than that, St. Alphonsus, the greatest confessor perhaps <laughs> in the world and moral theology, moral theologian, he said that um, more sins or everyone, um, let me give you the exact quote because this is such a huge quote. Um, and I want to say it exactly as he says it. Uh, shout out to Ryan Grant. Hopefully he can translate all the rest of the volumes of of good old St. Francis, but he hears what he says, page 465. This is volume two of his moral theology published by Ryan Grant's Media Edge Express and translated by him. He says this, um, page 465, <clears throat> I do not hesitate to assert that everyone who has been damned was damned on account of this one vice of sexual impurity, or at least not without it. I mean, that is the strongest statement. I mean, you, you don't even, people can disregard this. I mean, people can technically disregard a private revelation if they're, if they're just foolish and some people do. Uh, but what about the doctor of moral theology? A yeah. great saint. I mean, this is, a, and this was in 1780s. He said mm-hmm. that imagine what it's like now. So I, I think that we live under demonic captivity. The demons have, Man, completely, that's hard. That's heavy. Completely taken over. We're just completely under demonic uh, occupation, if you will. That's when we need to look at this. This, this is why we need truly need to think about this as a crusade against the world of flesh and the devil, and that our whole society is ruled by demons because, especially of the sins of the flesh. At this point, we're at this point. So, yeah. The, and the reason why, uh, I, the way that I can see, the reason why it's so easy to get people with the sins of the flesh because the sins of the flesh is, is tied to your concupiscible appetite, which also yeah. deals with eating your concupiscible appetite, which is an appetite in your soul and your body is ordered towards eating and the conjugal act. Those are the two things that the, the <laughs> concupiscible appetite that God designed yeah. your, your being to desire both of those things. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And both of them need to be properly ordered according to God's law. And so it's, it's a deep embedded natural instinct of natural law that needs to be properly ordered by God's law. And that's, and that's why every single culture, every single culture has had very strong, strong customs regarding marriage and adultery. It's a natural inclination. People understand I me. Mean, people understand that because they're more rational than they are today. They understand that there's a very, very strong prohibition against adultery, you know, it's uh, well. Think about the most amazing. Think about the most pure and um, 
wholesome and rightly ordered thing that could happen to a married couple. It's like their wedding night, right? It's the tra traditionally speaking, it's it's the it's a feast, it's a celebration. There's drinks, there's food, there's toasts, there's dancing, there's all those things. Okay, even amongst uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, anyway, that side note, I won't go into that. But point is, it, it's the most amazing thing. And then obviously the couple has their their wedding night, um, and it's it's totally pure. It's totally innocent. There's not there's nothing weird about it. I mean, if you, <laughs> I don't know, like imagine you had a party for people that weren't married, and then they're like, see ya, go have your. It's, it'd be a weird send-off it's like totally right? yeah it's creepy it's creepy yeah, i mean the, the whole i mean the whole wedding ceremony and party is basically a socially acceptable way to bless the conjugal act and children that's the whole point of i mean it's the whole like and uh, like cultural children, context and children should be yeah. there and they should be right. dancing on you yeah, know they, this like, is, they should this be is this is beautiful this is beautiful this is what is so beautiful of a marriage it's like yeah. And, you know, when you read the marriage mass, it's all about that they may have children, both in the East and the Western, right? All these yeah. petitions that they may have children, that they may have children. It's all about the fruit of the womb. Anyhow, we're getting off track into marriage. Well, but like, but, that, that's true. It's, it's the opposite of that is disordered. I mean, that's the perfect. And then the opposite of it is disordered. You know? Right. So fasting is so crucial yeah. because here is the the big, in my opinion, this is. The the best thing Paul the Sixth ever did was Humana Vitae. The worst thing yeah. he ever did was actually, in my opinion, not the new mass, but relaxing the fasting rules. But even more than that yeah, yeah. was asserting <laughs> that you can substitute something from bodily fasting, which is a complete spiritual That's error true. in the spiritual life. And yeah. here's why. You cannot substitute anything. This is why I'm, I'm going to tell all the viewers, you must bodily fast in Lent. I'm, I'm telling all the viewers, because this is the spiritual wisdom of the fathers, you cannot substitute anything for bodily fasting. Here's why. Because nothing else attacks and orders the concupiscible appetite. Yep. The concupiscible appetite is the conjugal act and food. Those are the two mm -hmm. things. How else are you going to deal with the, the um, concupiscible appetite? If you pray more, it's not going to help your concupiscible appetite. I mean, it's obviously going to help it, but it's not going to directly address the concupiscible appetite's ordering. If you give alms more, that is not going to directly address your concupiscible appetite. If you do anything else besides bodily fantasy, it's not going to directly address this appetite within you. There is no way to do it but bodily fasting. And this is the biggest problem is that yep. this was asserted in Paul the Sixth's, um, I, I don't have the what in front of me, but in his document, which relaxed the fasting rules. I mean, the, the fasting rules had been relaxed by other popes. And that, yeah. this is, it's okay to relax the fasting rule per se, you know, just in, in theory. Mm. Um, but the, the real issue was that there was a spiritual error introduced to the faithful in this this terrible error at a time when the sexual the second sexual revolution was about to erupt and now we're in demonic captivity honestly it's father isaac had a sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago as goes the church so goes the world and um i remember when the, the carrick stuff all came out like 2018 i was actually painting this house this uh this main floor with my buddy 
And uh, I just, anyway, we were just working together all day. And I just said, man, there's something wrong. Like, I just, I, I didn't know how to explain it. I just said, something's wrong, man. You know, this, it wasn't about that scandal per se, but it was so much scandal was coming out. And I just said this, I had this gut feeling. I'm like, things can't last. Things are going to fall, you know, and leading up to the whole coronavirus thing. I kept telling my wife, not that I'm saying I knew it was going to come. I didn't, but I just kept saying, I'm like, things are so bad in the church that there's no way that society will not completely devolve because there's, there's the principle of all grace comes into the world through the altar. Okay. And you take the fact that everything's been so perverted in the mass and then so many priests don't believe and so fewer masses are offered and the body of Christ is so weak because the people aren't, you know, anyway. So I just thought, man, it's just, and look where we are. So, um, People need to understand that relaxing the fasting rules historically, it's been very practical, but it's always been something that a Pope has done in conjunction with understanding the already lived difficulties of the people. So like when Leo XIII is relaxing the fasting rules in late 1800s, okay, some people say you shouldn't have done that, fine. But it went from the traditional, basically medieval, you know, Lent sort of thing of no meat, for the most part, and rather, you know, we can have some some uh, cold flesh meat, whatever, turtles and fish. Um, long fasting durations, you know, between meals and things. And he, he basically said at that point you could allow lard and some meat broth throughout some of your meals. But because people had left European nations and – or sorry, people had left Catholic nations, the Catholic rhythms of life had completely devolved because of the Industrial Revolution – so if you think about the times people were fasting the way that you read about in the Middle Ages, well, society shut down for those times. You know, I mean, like you knew everybody in your village was fasting and doing a black fast for like 48 hours. So you weren't going to expect the mill to run <laughs> because, you know, whereas if you move off to the United States or you live in England or even a, even Italy, I mean, a place where, you know, the, the, the Industrial Revolution is, is taking over in some ways. Um, unfortunately you have these men who are trying to support their families and they have to work 12 hour days and they're going to pass out and fall and die in the machine. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? and, and this is ha really actually hazardous work. You know, you could actually exactly. die or you yeah. could, you know, this is serious. So even then, think, about, think about the sacrifice that they were still expecting. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. You can have lard that you can fry your potatoes in, <laughs> you know, right. for your meal that you're not allowed to have till 12 o'clock. You know, whatever the point is, is like it was still really hard. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, we're not desert fathers. If you're going to be a desert father, you go be a desert father. A man with children who has to keep his cool and can't just fall asleep in meditation. Like, you can't do that as a man with children. So the fasting rules are, and man, think how far it's devolved. I mean, uh, you know what blessed is she is? That's yeah, like, that. I do. I'm yeah, not, your wife I'm not hating on it. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm not, I'm not, but people can imagine what I might think about some of these things. But anyway, well, the point is, my wife had this book from them a few years ago. And I'm, I'm looking at this book, and this is even way before I was like, I was barely even a conservative Catholic at this point. Mm -hmm. And every day it was a Lenten thing. And I open it up, and it's like you could pick prayer, fasting, almsgiving. That was like, pick one each day. Mm -hmm. And fasting was, I mean, oh man, like I. Sorry, this is a bugaboo for mine, working in the Catholic school system. I was at a professional development day, PD day. Do you guys call them that, PD days? or PD, do, you, do you call them that in the States when the teachers go to – you call it a PD day like the teachers go in and like the students are home? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Professional uh, development. Anyway, so like right, you have right, your, right, yeah. your conferences or whatever. 
It was one of those. You had like three or four a year. And um, the chaplain, who is one of the main – he works for the diocese. Like he's a – he's not a chaplain because he's not a priest, but anyway. And um, he's like got the ear of the bishop, this guy. Okay. And he's telling this group of 80 teachers, like, <laughs> it's a Friday. Okay. And it's in Lent. I know most people, most Catholics don't do the Friday meatless the rest of the year, but a lot of cultural Catholics will at least still do the Friday meatless. Maybe you'd expect anyway, Friday in Lent, the local pub has a, has a, it's always where we would go for our meals, like on the PD day. And it's a roast beef buffet. And it's Friday in Lent. And this man who has the ear of the bishop, just tells the whole staff, as long as you do something else, you don't have to fast. And this is in Lent on Friday. Uh, and I'm just like, right. what, do you, what do you mean? But I, I was like, what do you mean by that? Because okay. like, what, this is, it's so vague. What can you substitute? That's the same kind of thing. What, you think these people are going right. to go pay an extra rosary? They're not paying yeah. a rosary in the first place. <laughs> yeah, the only thing, in fact is abstaining from the conjugal act, but typically people are not doing the conjugal act three times a day. So it, it's not even comparable. I mean, this not is, this is not, uh, uh, so, but, but let so me, annoying. I want to make the, I want to make the, the distinction here between, <clears throat> okay, what are Catholics actually obliged to fast currently under mm -hmm. the current canonical norms, yeah. which will fulfill the obligation of obedience in this case, because we are obliged to obey in all these cases, um, even if you disagree with the relaxation. Um, but fasting is, in fact, a virtue, as St. Thomas says. It's a virtue, and a virtue is a habit. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to acquire the virtue of fasting by fulfilling the twice-a-year <laughs> fasting rules, which mm -hmm. are currently in place. Now, this is... This is, I don't know what it is. You can tell viewers what it is in America because it isn't different in every country. Your bishop conference will make a, a stipulation because the current norm, to my knowledge, with the Holy See is that the the Friday abstinence from meat. So you, you got, first of all, if, if viewer, for viewers, if you don't know, fasting is abstaining from food, not eating. Abstinence is abstaining mainly just from meat. Mm -hmm. And fasting is defined technically as one full meal. And if you can't make it with any out any other food, you can basically have two snacks in between yeah. besides yeah. this one full meal. That's what's defined as fasting. So the actual obligation in the United States for Catholics, at least, tell us what, what Canada's like, is that same thing as the States. You oh, it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you are obliged to fast and abstain on Ash Wednesday, uh, sorry, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, okay? Yeah. And then you are obliged to abstain only on Fridays and Lent. You can So you can have a ton of tuna fish sandwiches throughout the day. You're not obliged to fast, but you have to abstain from meat. That is obligatory. It's not true what the priest just said. That's against the, the law, the can canonical law. It's not true that you could substitute them saying during Lent. Now, outside of the year, outside of the, you know, Tempus Piranum, <clears throat> The actual term for ordinary time is tempus peranum, the time throughout the year. Uh, but the English thought it would be a great idea to name it ordinary time, which is even worse. 
Tempest Prime. Anyhow, uh, so during time after Pentecost or Epiphany Tide or what the real titles are, um, you are still obliged to fast. I'm sorry, you are still obliged to abstain from meat or substitute some other penance. Mm-hmm. But that's all based on this error that I'm, I'm trying to assert that this is an actual error. You cannot. It's impossible in the spiritual life. That's against the, the whole, all the spiritual wisdom of the fathers. Um, but also in the current norms, you can eat meat if a solemnity, according to the new calendar, the solemnity is essentially a first-class feast translated into the old calendar. It's pretty much a, every first-class feast is pretty much a solemnity to my knowledge. But it is based on the new calendar. So you have to l- actually look at the new calendar, find out what your obligation is. Because So if Christmas falls on a Friday, you can eat meats on Christmas. And, and you should. You should not try to abstain. That's that's ridiculous. You, you'd be a Puritan. I would, you would be ridiculed as a Cromwellian if you if you ate if you abstained on Christmas on a Friday. Anyhow, um, so those are the actual norms. Okay, those are the acts. That's what you're actually uh, obliged to do. And I want to contrast this with a great article over uh, with our buddy Taylor Marshall. He has a great little article on his website from years ago called "Medieval Lent Was Harder Than Islamic Ramadan." Yeah. And by the way, side note, this is why this is why men are converting in droves to Mohammedanism. Yeah. Because Mohammedanism has kept its masculine spirit. Mm-hmm. But the feminization of the our own crusaders, who were, were the Jesuits for dec- for centuries, the feminization of the Jesuits, who are our frontline crusaders, began in this century and has has continued until what we have the Jesuits today, which is a complete feminization of the greatest, I mean, in my opinion, the greatest crusading order ever as the Jesuits. Um, Anyhow, um, we can never fight. We can never win the war against Mohammedanism if we don't become men of God like this. So here is the rules for medieval Lent. So first of all, it is 46 days long. So it begins on Ash Wednesday And what you do is you fast and abstain on all 40 days of Lent, except for on Sundays, you only abstain because on Sundays you should not fast because it's, it's always a holy day, but you still abstain. Okay. And what is, what is abstinence? Abstinence is not only meat. It's also eggs Mm -hmm. and dairy products. Mm -hmm. Now, um, and now this is different. The Eastern custom also Eastern, the Greeks would also take out fish and wine because they're, they're, they were more civilized. Whereas in the West, um, they didn't even have clean water. So they had to drink things like beer. Um, but they also, and they also had fish because it's just a different econ- economic situation. So you can eat fish during Lent, um, but no, no meat and dairy products, yep. even on Sunday. So the entire duration of Lent, from Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter, mm-hmm. no meat, no eggs, no dairy products. This, this is, and also you're fasting too. So you're eating only eating one meal per day of that <clears throat> abstain, abstaining. So except on Sundays, you can eat multiple meals of, Whatever of you're fish and multiple yeah. meals of bread, and you know you can eat. You can fill up on Sunday, but it has to be still abstained. So that's the basic. The other, the other aspect is that you also abstain from the conjugal act the entire Lent. Mm-hmm. So you know so, that'd be yeah, awkward. Being, that'd be awkward being born in like January. Yeah, true. <laughs> You're like, uh, my parents didn't make it. 
<laughs> you just kind of know it's a Lent baby. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, Lent baby. <laughs> they, they pro- I don't know if they calculated that that closely. Anyway, what were you saying? Well, I was I was just gonna say um, that's what I was gonna say. I was gonna joke about the Lent baby. I think I said. Oh, okay. So yeah. so this this is the type of fasting yeah that we need to recover because. Hey, I, I get it. Like you're saying with Leo the 13th, I get it. You're working in the coal mine. You need to eat some lard. That makes sense. But now we all work in offices in opulent luxury. Yeah, we don't we don't need to relax the fast anymore. I mean, working even if we did, we could debate about whether or not it was required later or whether it was necessary earlier. Yeah, but now on, it's not only. Oh, what was that? Am I coming through? I was saying working on Zoom is like the same thing. <laughs> I mean, if you are, I mean, even construction workers, I mean, how much overtime do they have to, I mean, even construction workers and I mean, people who are doing manual labor, I mean, they have so many machines. I mean, how much of that is even manual uh, anymore? I mean, especially with the the 40 hour work week, which is imposed as well. Yeah. The only thing like this, this is what people I've made this mistake before. Where uh, I was, I was like, I'm gonna basically do, I'm gonna just basically do the length that you described, you know. And um, it was like it, these people that were doing these really strong lengths, you know, it is, it is like being an athlete, you know. They worked up to it for a long time. Um, even little children, I mean, they, they just the, people who lived years ago, okay, you know, they wouldn't even eat like breakfast as we know it. Break, break fast, you know. That's what it means, like. Um, you still see this a little bit in European dietary habits. They don't, I mean, in England and places like that, they eat breakfast, but it's even in, even children in places like Italy, if they have breakfast, it's a piece of croissant and like a small cup of milk or something. It's not really a big thing. You usually eat something around 10, 11 o'clock is your first merenda. It's called, it's just like a snack, but it's actually kind of like a sandwich. And then you have lunch. It's a different eating habits because they used to not really eat till later in the day. So, I mean, these people were obviously a lot harder and more rugged. Even in traditional seminaries, you know, like the SSPX and stuff, the the rectors will tell you that um, they have to like the fortitude of the men is less, generally speaking, and we're all guilty of that. So just because of the way we've grown up, you know, and and you can't take someone who's lived like a normal person, even if he's a traditional Catholic, let's say, and he's just. You know, even if someone gives up meat for all of Lent, they're probably still going to eat pizza and stuff, you know, like a couple times a week or whatever. So you can't take a man like that and then say, here, do a medieval Lent. Uh, and he's going to get like, he'll get sick, you know, like yeah. you'll get physically ill. Your body, it's just kind of like when people go on keto or something, they get the keto flu, they always call it, you know, um, because, and that's so these are just things you're going to have to realize. So this is why this is why the season we're in right now, Satujisima. Uh, and sex is important because you have, you know, 30 days roughly where you can re- lead up to it. So personally, like I'm trying to get better fasting. Okay. Um, I'm, I did a hard advent, for, like hard for me, hard for the first time. I like fully the first time I'd ever done it in that way. And it was great. And I'm going to do a hard Lent harder than advent. Um, so personally, what I'm going to do 100% is Wednesdays and Fridays, no meat at all. Uh, the rest of the time, partial fasting minimum for the rest of the day. So like if I have one meal of meat, whatever, and then, um, intermittent fasting. So I won't eat till lunch every day. Um, and then nothing after six, nothing after supper. Like, I mean, it's obviously it's not a desert father thing, but it's, it's going to cut down 
compared to what I used to live like. I mean, it's going to cut down a third of the calories I eat in a day. But, you know, I tried to go harder than that last year. And I actually ended up getting sick. I mean, I, I don't, that's not the only reason, but I got, kept getting strep throat and stuff. And I real and I just, I didn't have any strength, you know? So you got to work up to it is my point. So now I'm at the point this year where I can, so for anyone who's listening to this, um, <clears throat> you can't just jump into going out and eating only like seeds and, you know, like greens from <laughs> the wilderness yeah. or something. You, you can't because you will get sick. Okay. Yes. And, and also, even if we take construction or something, there is a lot of danger like, I'm, like, for example, this, after this, I'm in about an hour, so I'm driving to Niagara Falls. Okay, it's two hours for me. That's where I film the Fatima Center stuff. And uh, I got to drive on the highway and whatever. I mean, it's a dangerous thing. I'm, I mean, living in a... Yeah, when you're, yeah, it looks like, like, when you're in, in this latitude, it's dangerous. Well, that's what I mean. So, and even, so, so, I mean, like, if I was... Let's say I was lethargic, okay? You're right. I might exactly. have an orange juice or something. Like, I might just... That would just be smart for me to do, okay? Because, so, it's... It, if you're living in the medieval times, I mean, like your your horse and buggy cart, or or you're walking to whatever in your village, like you're not going to kill anybody if you're kind of sluggish and you fall right. over. Right. <laughs> but so totally. these are things you have to think about. Oh um, yeah. yeah. But we still need to go a lot harder. Is the point? Oh yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is exact. Yeah. This is what the fathers call immoderate zeal. Yeah. 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 If people and and it's just a lack of prudence. You're you're just not. Um, you just don't understand the fact. I mean, it, when you get sick. Fathers need to not get sick. You need to be absolutely healthy because when you get sick, you can't make money for the family. You got to yeah. stay home from work. Yeah. You're like keeping yourself healthy is a very, very important duty of a man. Yeah. So you definitely need to be very careful with that. Yeah. Very, a very easy thing. Just ease into it. Just do it. Just do it on Wednesdays. Just do or just Fridays. Just do one. I mean, just, ex, you know, just increase Fridays during this, during this. And, you, line, you, and you have no excuse not to eat. That's one thing. It's, it's that dichotomy here. Right. So guys like Eric Sammons, right. I mean, you hear about the way he's a really big faster. I mean, his wife is always leading people through like 48 hour black fast and stuff. I mean, Eric himself, I mean, and, but and he's a father with a bunch of kids and he'll mm -hmm. tell you, if you read, he actually has great blog posts about just from his health perspective. Um, he got rid of his diabetes and everything just by changing his eating habits, which is oh, wonderful great. here. That's awesome. Um, but but he eased, he 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 lays out how he did it. Even Marshall, he'll talk about it. Like he, you know, he does. Bit. I think for Lent, he basically does like no food or drink, maybe some water. I don't know till three o'clock um, every day, and then no meat or something like. That. I mean, he does. He goes hardcore. But he you, he tells you about what he's done. I mean, he started fasting when he was like nineteen years old and learning yeah. how to do it and things. So you can get to that. So you have to get to that point, okay? But if you're not there. Obviously, don't go all, but you don't have an excuse to not get there eventually. Is kind of this yes. is the weird thing about trying to be a Catholic in this day and age. Uh, it's weird being a uh, let's whatever traditional Catholic, whatever trying to be a, a true Catholic in in this day and age. It's so weird because you're like a stranger in a strange land. You know, okay, you fine. You found the traditional Latin Mass, great. What else? <laughs> you know, so there's so many things. So, but you have to get there eventually. So right now, I mean, how many days until Lent? Like twenty days or whatever it is. Yeah, we've got. Um... Today is the 8th of February. Next week is Ash Wednesday. Okay. So, oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, right now, if you're not doing anything, immediately what you could do is don't eat after supper, don't eat till 10 in the morning, cut out sweets. Just do that. Okay. Because you're going to go, like, you will go through a detox. I mean, if the, nor the average American diet, okay, your body will be like, where's all my sugar? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you cut out sugar, sugar will kill you because it's such a drug. Right. Yeah. But but you'll get over that in about a week or two. 
do that. Just do that. I mean, even even whatever's hard. Okay, just get rid of sugar this Lent. Okay, that's a that will be. I mean, it's we sound weak compared to our fathers in the Middle Ages. Fine, we are. Okay, but for yeah. us, that will be hard, and yeah. you will struggle. Yeah, and that will be useful. And then by the time Advent comes around, Ember Days and stuff, you oh, I'll do no sugar again. Plus, next thing, by the time two or three Lents from now, you're not eating until three p.m. Yeah, and not eating meat. Like, and yeah. you'll be, and you'll be there, and you'll be amazed that you're actually there. You have to play the long game. Yeah, the, the Masons and the Communists and the demons mm -hmm. controlling all of them have played the long game. That's why yeah. we're in demonic captivity at this point. Yeah, they've played the long game. Understand that if you've never fasted, it's going to take years, literally, mm -hmm. yeah, for you to get to the point where you can fast every single week. You can fast mm -hmm. a lot more seriously in Lent. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a long time. So, be real with yourself. Humility is conformity with the truth. You need to realize where you're at and do that. Now, there's a quick question in the chat mm -hmm. asking about the Feast of St. Joseph, which falls on a Friday this year. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, shout out to Tan. You need to get this Tan calendar because this thing gives you everything you need to know. Um, because uh, once again, it, it is determined by the Novus Ordo calendar. So on the Novus Ordo calendar, St. Joseph is a solemnity this year. So that means that you can't eat meat. Meat is allowed technically Technically, now you would still not under medieval fasting. You would still not eat meat on on Saint Joseph, but you're not obliged to abstain according to the Lenten rules that are and in the, place. And um, is it it's March 19th is the traditional feast day anyway, though, right, right. for Saint Joseph? Okay, um, you know I never put two and two together. I was born on his vigil. <laughs> there we go. The, my the anti anti feminism. <laughs> and my, my my middle Perfect. name is Joseph. I literally never thought about that. I'm such an idiot. I there didn't it even, is. Anyway. So, <laughs> you heard um, it first here. I literally, I, for years, I mean, I have this little book. Oh, I dropped it. Anyway, I have my like prayer book and I would pray my morning offering the last few years. And it's like, call on your saint, whatever, you know, saint who's in his, whose name it is my honor to bear. And I honestly forgot, like I didn't, because Joseph is my no-no's name. Right? Mm, oh, Giuseppe, you know, no, no. Come on now. That's it. So, <laughs> and he's the uh, guy. He's the guy I dedicated the book to. And I'm like, I, how did I know? It's God as a sense of humor. I, I just never thought it. Like, it's been Joseph my whole life. I was born on March 18th, about 5 p.m. Um, so I always joked. I was, I, I would always, I always thought the cool part was that St. Patrick's Day at midnight was my birthday. Uh, you know, like, you know, 17th becomes the 18th. But then I'm thinking, no, I'm born in the, like, that's the evening. I mean, after 4.35 o'clock, that becomes the evening, technically, for the next. That's the vigil. Yes, and, the, that um, would be when they would be chanting vespers of the feast of Saint Joseph. Yeah, right there. So I'm just I'm laughing, and then it's anyway. So, Perfect. but um, in in the, in the older fasting times, you would relax certain like even you would relax certain things, but it would be liturgical things would be relaxed, or like if it's uh if it's a Friday in Lent and it's a major feast day like this in the in the older times, you would just be able to like eat earlier in the day, or you know things like that, but you still wouldn't be able to do meat. Right, you'd be able to you'd be able to reflect the, the the beauty of the feast day with whatever you're allowed to eat, but you still couldn't add a cheeseburger in there. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely fundamental. I mean, this is this is the main. I, I mean, I would say this is the first crusade of any man, in my opinion. I, I, I think the first crusade starts with fasting mm -hmm. because it is so fundamental. Because especially men struggle, in particular, very vehemently. A, with the sins of the flesh and it, it brings down so many men destroys them many many good men are destroyed by sins of the flesh 
I mean, it, mm-hmm. it is such a pervasive, uh, insidious evil. And that's why we need to be always, and the saints tell us, always on our guard. Even if you've, you know, you've never fallen in chastity for tw- two decades, you still need to be on your guard. Any man who is a good man of God can fall in an instant with the well, sins of the flesh, as, as King David shows us. Yeah, yeah. Let's look at uh, let's let's be all pop cultural. Let's look at Tom Brady, and I know he's a lapsed Catholic, and his wife is basically a witch. So that's a problem. Um, you know that? I, I did not know either of those topics. We were just talking before the air about how great a QB is. I mean, so I it, he's a he's a Catholic. Right. Like he wanted to go to Notre okay. Dame, um, and uh, his wife's a witch. Like she 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 she. He's in an interview. Jesse Romero did something on it. Pardon? He's a, she's an actual wish. Like witch? she talks about, he call, he jokes that she's like a good witch, and she oh, makes no. these altars for him in his uh, his. It's uh, uh, terrible. She's Portuguese or she's Brazilian, so they're two they're two baptized Catholics. So I mean, hey, pray for them. We all need prayers. Uh, yeah. That would be great. I mean, how how great would that be if a, if a famous athlete became serious about his faith? Anyway, like anyway, but um, he's an example of. Well, he's an example of. Um, taking control, I mean, from an athletic perspective, his regimen for eating and and uh, not even training like super hard, but the way that he takes care of himself is legendary. Like he only eats at a certain time. He doesn't eat certain foods. He drinks like four gallons of water a day, a lot of vitamins. Um, and his long, he's 40, almost 44 years old and he's he's still the best quarterback, one of the best quarterback, one of the best athletes if you think about how fast and dangerous the NFL is. It's one of the best athletes on earth. And he's almost forty-four. It's crazy. It's it's, yeah. it's 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 incomprehensible. Obviously, a lot of that's luck, you know. I mean, anyone who's anyone who's played, and I, some of the guys I played with who ended up playing in the Canadian Football League, the CFL, for example, like, you know, a lot of it really is not luck and not, not taking anything away. But there's injuries you avoid, and you know, you don't you don't break your femur, you know, things you can't really help, you know. Um, but nonetheless, all that considered, he is an example from a natural perspective. So if a guy like him can do it, who's literally not practicing the faith at all, and he's able to, from a natural perspective, fast, take, you know, whatever, um, there's no excuse for a Catholic who has the help right. of the sacraments. Right. Yeah, I mean, somebody who's in mortal sin, presumably, yeah. you don't want to judge his soul, obviously, but if someone's fallen away and doesn't even have the graces of the sacraments, I mean, how much more will God judge you, oh little of faith? Yeah. I, what will Jesus Christ say? Jesus Christ, he he. The, the it's the parable of the um, the tenants, mm-hmm. the parable of the coin, where he God invests in these three individuals, and they both go out and work, mm-hmm. and they work their investment, and the one hides it away, and the fathers say, "This is this is our baptism," is what yeah. is what uh, they're talking about. Jesus Christ has invested in you. When so many others have fallen away and gone to eternal damnation, he has baptized you, O Catholic, and he's invested his grace into you. Will you work it and work your salvation and take up the cross of this first crusade? This is the first crusade. So very, very crucially important. I think, in my opinion, I think the number one priority of every man needs to get a hold of fasting. It's so, so essential, um, but is one of the three uh, vital and important necessary weapons against the world of flesh and the devil, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So, but before we run out of time, I wanted to comment. I want to get your comment, Kennedy, because you've read Lefebvre, as I have not. And uh, 
I'm not going to read this whole quote and you can, you can, um, you can find it on the internet somewhere. I, I mean, I don't even, it is completely ridiculous that these little news bites of Pope Francis, just even if Pope Francis was a perfect Pope, it is, it is just ridiculous that a little news bite, which is a, a small snippet and not even a full sentence gets thrown around everywhere. It's ridiculous. I know it's crazy, but that's been going on since, uh, I mean, since highest the highest the ninth. I mean, well, I mean, just the newspaper, the media, just taking oh. a spin and just going wherever they want yeah. with it. Yeah. But anyhow, so I'm not even going to read. I don't even know what all he said, and I'm not going to read it. Um, but the point is, we don't. Even, but the things that are being thrown around is what's what's important because this is what's going to be thrown against Catholics. Because Pope Francis said something to the effect. Again, go read the actual thing if you want to know what he actually said. Don't take my word for it. But he said something to the effect of Vatican II is the magisterium. Yep. If you are not with Vatican II, you are not with the church. We are going to deal more strictly with these people who interpret Vatican II according to their own opinion. So mm-hmm. it's a very, very bold statement. Very strong statement. It's probably the most strongest statement he's ever made, I think, because it, it clearly implies at least in this soundbite, again, go read the actual text, but in this soundbite that's going to be thrown around by Catholics all over the internet for a while, mm-hmm. that anybody who questions Vatican II or wants clarity on Vatican II or has an issue with Vatican II or any sort of whatever the current reigning Pope, and keep in mind, Pope Francis has a very different interpretation of Vatican II than Pope Benedict, mm-hmm. then Pope John Paul II, then Paul VI, they all have very different interpretations of Vatican II. And yeah. I can, if someone wants to know precisely what those things are, I can give you details. Um, so all the po- Vatican II popes even disagreed about what Vatican II even <laughs> teaches. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a, that phrase of what Vatican II teaches is essentially a newspeak phrase for yeah. whatever the current pope is imposing on the faithful whether that's good or evil, you know, I mean, obviously I would agree. We would agree very much. Kennedy and I would agree very much with a lot of the things that Pope Benedict did. Mm-hmm. And he did those. I mean, he, he said his whole pontificate was Vatican II. So if that's Vatican II. I'm all for it. But um, I wanted to ask you, Kennedy, what was, what was Lefebvre's understanding of what Vatican II, because Lefebvre understood Vatican II as it was an ecumenical council it was an act of the magisterium. What is his understanding as, as to what is Vatican II? What is its authority? What was what did Lefebvre say about that? Hmm. Well, actually, it's 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 a little more complicated. Um, hear me out here, people. I'm just putting forth an idea here. Okay. I'm not. I'm not stamping it. But I'm saying. Now hold on a second. Oh. You're you're uh, what garbled for a second. Can you hear me now? Oh, try it. Okay. You sound okay now. Can you hear me? Start over. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. See, the devil doesn't want me to talk about Lefebvre because that's how we, that's, if the devil doesn't want you to talk about somebody, it's a good thing. And by the way, he died with a requiem mass and the bishop of the local diocese who respected him greatly was there. Not, I think he, I didn't celebrate the mass, but the point is guys, just whatever, even if you thought about, even if you didn't agree with the consecrations, he died in the bosom of the church and he had a holy life. He's a saintly man. So there you go. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna pray for the intercession of Paul VI, I think you can pray for the intercession of Archbishop Lefebvre. Anyway, so um, 
what is an ecumenical council? I mean, ecumenical, there's a, I, and forgive me here, Mike from RTF, enumerate, uh, 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 literally, he explained this thing properly. Okay. Yes. But yeah, um, shout and, out to Mike. Really great a, content over there. Yeah. In spite of his personality, he's a good guy. You know, like, <laughs> but, um, but he, uh, I can't remember where it was from. But anyway, there's, there's a, so the, the sacraments are the highest. Okay. As far as like for the faith, sacramentals are lower. But apparently an ecumenical council is higher than a sacramental. I don't know how that works. Okay. But the point is because it has a form, a matter, and intent to it. There's a point to an ecumenical council. If it doesn't have these certain marks, is it an ecumenical council? This is a question that theologians have been raising. Okay. Not just SSPX, but just I was listening to Father Ripperger the other day talk about it. Um, you know, what is the point of not that did it happen? Obviously it happened. Like it happened in in, in Rome, you know, 60, 70 years ago, whatever, or 50 years ago. Um, but there was no intention at the Second Vatican Council to define any dogma. That's explicit, which is in contrast to every ecumenical council of the past that was legit. The point was to define some sort of dogma and to combat some sort of heresy. So that's a point that's missing. Anyway, so what, what did Lefebvre think about the Second Vatican Council? Well, he thought about the Second Vatican Council, all you could think about the Second Vatican Council. Take what is good and reject what is bad. And this, the, the fact that it was not uh, defined the fact that the intention of the Second Vatican Council was not to combat heresy or define anything from a dogmatic perspective in the truest sense. Obviously, they put out documents, you know, dogmatic constitution, that sort of thing. But the note of infallibility was intentionally avoided. And the note of and, and the idea of defining any dogma, binding on the faithful, wasn't there. That's that's from Paul VI and Don 23rd. This is not a conspiracy. This is just what was happening. So Lefebvre thought of the Second Vatican Council, what you can see in the accord that he signed with Cardinal Ratzinger. Again, another man who has a different interpretation, but they signed an accord in 1988, and that accord is still the basis, if I'm not mistaken, for the Fraternity of St. Peter. You can find it on their website. And basically, sure, not, let's let's be generous. 98% of Vatican II is, 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 is technically, without a doubt, easy. Here's the caveat, though. Easy to interpret in a traditional sense. Yeah. Restate the, a lot of quotes from previous councils and everything, yeah. Of course, okay? But... It is easy to interpret in another way, but it's amazing. People think Lefebvre, so it's amazing how much benefit of the doubt he gave the council and he gave uh, the magisterium after the Second Vatican Council. People don't realize he celebrated, he, did, he never celebrated the Novus Ordo because that wasn't promulgated until 1970, basically. But he did celebrate the Vatican II recommendations, gave it a shot, and was like, this is just going to harm the faith. He took out he, and he recommended the, certain reforms. Yes, yeah. and he tried it. He did a he won he did a French language mass at uh, versus populum one time. It was basically just a word for word translation. It'd be like reading your Lassance Missal in your native language. He basically did that facing the people. Just didn't like it. Just thought it was awkward and it was weird and anyway. but um, but he didn't. He wasn't anti the fact that the church could change something. Not at all. This is why the the society gets they get crap from people for doing the nineteen. 55 Holy Week. And I laughed. They're like, oh, they're not even that trad. And I'm like, buddy, just give it a rest. Anyway, um, but because they they say the position of the of the society is not that they're not resisting. Like the, they're not they're they're for something, they're not anti-something. They're for what they were passed on, and that's the 1962 missile. So they just pray it. They don't they they don't want to have this impression that their liturgical um it's not like liturgical preference is the reason. So like we if you ask them, they'll say for sure the pre-55 Holy Week is better, but that's not what we received. 
they just pass on what they received. Anyway, so Lefebvre signed an accord with with Ratzinger. You could that's what he thought about Vatican II. And and Lef and Ratzinger, as the head of the CDF at the time, speaking on behalf of the Pope, there was a few, I can't remember all the areas. You can read it, it's easy to find. Look up, you know, 1988. I think it's May 5th Accord or something like that. And um, it was freely acceptable that there were certain parts of the Second Vatican Council that you were allowed to dispute until further clarification, which there's never been. If anything, things have gotten more murky since then. But it was basically, hey, I get this. Like, the Fev was there. I can read 95% of this, and I can tell my seminarians how they need to interpret this in light of tradition. We can make it work. It's not a square peg in a round hole. This 5%, I got to square peg it, and I don't, know, I don't know how to do that, Holy Father. And they said, fair enough. Wherever there is ambiguity, and there was a specific parts, you can... So, that, so his position was just exact. His position was more moderate, ironically, than so many... Uh, his position was more moderate than a lot of commentators today, who ironically are anti-society St. Pius X. So. Right, yeah, and I, <clears throat> this is the point that I wanted to make here, is that most trads that I hear have a very shallow, yeah. shallow intellectual critique of Vatican. They just say, well, let's just throw out the council. That's just ridiculous <laughs> you know let's just, oh it's just a oh it's just a modernist conspiracy like all this like well you you need to have a very articulated response here yes lefebvre was not required to accept the whole council to be completely integrated into the church they made an agreement all he had to accept was i can't remember the name of the, the number of the paragraph but one single paragraph in lumen gentium Mm-hmm. He was required to subscribe to that wholeheartedly, which was entirely orthodox. It was just like quoting that the, the bishops and the pope have authority. Uh, okay, no, no argument, of course. Um, and he was not required to accept the whole council. The dispute was actually not over um, basically what, what Lefebvre actually says in the consecration homily is that he, the dispute was over the fact that after they made an agreement, he was then sent this sort of weird missive that said okay now you have to sign a public thing that you renounce all your errors and then mm-hmm. you can have the consecration and he was like whoa whoa what what are you talking about we just made an agreement we were mm-hmm. about to go forward anyways that that's history the there's a lot thing. of other yep. there's a lot of other parts to that we're not going to get into those complexities but the point and by the way shout out once again to michael lofton reason and theology in my opinion that is the greatest catholic youtube channel on youtube reason and theology go subscribe now you'll be happy you did Best content on YouTube, in my opinion. Michael, Michael Loft, I wanted to make sure Michael didn't uh, interpret our little joke earlier as any disrespect to him, because I, I truly think he does amazing work. In fact, I modeled Meaning of Catholic. I want Meaning of Catholic to just be like Reason and Theology with a different audience. So um, anyhow, um, but the issue is that um, there needs to be a very articulated uh, position on Vatican II and understanding um, I mean, I would I would disagree that an ecumenical council requires any particular feature, uh, except that the term ecumenical is is a term from the Roman Empire. It means simply ecumene means the whole world. It meant for the Roman Empire, but it's basically just when the church is trying to deal with some sort of worldwide problem, and that's why the ecumenical councils not only dealt with dogma, but they also dealt with all sorts of disciplinary things that they wanted mm-hmm. to impose on the whole church. Like mm-hmm. they council of Nicaea dealt with usury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ecumenical councils were dealing with King Fred, uh, Emperor Frederick. 
uh, all sorts of different issues that they also dealt with at the council. It wasn't just the dogma. So I think, I mean, I think that it's hard to come across and say, well, Vatican II is not a council. I think then the note of ecumenical council is simply given by the fact that the Pope approves it and calls it ecumenical most of all. Um, but what I'm, what I want to say here is simply that, um, Vatican II Council, the whole point is we don't understand what it teaches. Yeah. That's the whole point. So, yeah. yes, every Catholic should accept Vatican II because you're a Catholic. You accept what the magisterium says, but we don't know what it actually teaches. That is the whole point. So mm -hmm. I am 100% on board. I will submit completely. I We put in every one of our books at Our, our Lady of Victory Press, we say, I submit to Rome and everything she teaches. But the problem is we don't what know what Vatican II teaches. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, again, shout out to Ryan Grant. He just did an interview with Father Ripperger where he goes over the theological notes. It's pretty good. It's really good. That's the key, man. Like, I mean, this is why all these words, my goodness, people on, on, on Twitter, oh, do you submit to the whole magisterium? I'm like, what do you even mean by that? Yeah, like, give well, me all the propositions and I'll submit to all of them. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, when, when this is the thing, this is people need to understand. This is when Ratzinger said his hermeneutic of continuity speech. I think that was a very, very important moment because it it clearly delineated that there is a wrong way to interpret Vatican II. That was the best thing that came out of that whole. Right, I see what you're saying. Was that yeah. it, it said there is a wrong way. Mm -hmm. There is a wrong way, and this is one of the biggest ways that Pope Francis, I think, uh, teaches Vatican II different than Ratzinger, because Ratzinger clearly throughout his life you can you can critique many of his faults, and I agree with many of those. Mm -hmm. But he he later when he became more mature in his theology and and got away from the liberals that yeah. heretics that he was running with, he clearly understood that there was a serious problem in theological you know. And he said that in that speech, and he said, "Hey, there is a hermeneutic rupture which is wrong, mm -hmm. and there's a hermeneutic reform or continuity." Now immediately a Dozens of prominent Italian theologians submitted a, a official request to him. Excuse me. Official request to him and says, "Great, we're all on board with the hermeneutic continuity. What is it? Please, please clarify <laughs> these ten propositions." Yeah. And this is the basic procedure for every theolo This is so common throughout history. Just go read Denziger. It's filled with lists of propositions. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G throughout the centuries. It's so common. They just hey, submit a proposition. Is this true or false? A, B, C. So the, the Holy See can just go boom, 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 and send it back to them. It's the simplest thing in the world. But Benedict refused to answer it. I know. It's like the dubia. This is and the whole problem. The, we, we want to submit to Vatican II. I want to submit to Vatican II. I'm a, I'll be the first in line to submit. Just tell us what it means. Yeah, and but even then, you know, there are legitimate, there are legitimate disagreements on what we should even do with the council. Ultimately, yeah, I, I get that, and it's complex. No, but I mean, I read I read an article f before I was traditionalist, okay, like four years ago, five years ago, and it was by oh, I can't remember. It might be called something like "What to Do About Vatican II" or something like that. It was a English. He might have been. Oh, what's OSB? What's that stand for for a priest? What is that? Oh, Saint Benedict. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, he was Benedictine. Anyway, I think he was a priest, not a monk. Anyway, but um, or he could be a monk. Anyway, the point is, he wrote an article basically, and it was very reasonable. Like he wasn't, it didn't seem like a rad trad, but he just kind of wrote from a perspective of 
he'd be totally he basically said just time to move on from the second Vatican Council because his, his point was this whole thing can't last meaning whatever's going on right now this is going to have to be clarified anyway so at some point when there's a holy pope who fixes everything whatever def effectively the second Vatican Council will have to be kind of forgotten about insofar as all of the confusion is just going to have to stop being talked about. Yeah, right. Um, and anything that's dogmatic in it is already dogma. So there almost needs to be like a Vatican III, you know? And his, his point was the council itself, in the sense, insofar as it being an ecumenical council with the intention of doing what ecumenical councils do, whatever that may be. He's like, the council itself offers no benefit to the church outside of things that can be offered anyway. So one nice thing about Second Vatican Council really was the um, lifting up of the Eastern churches. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's one of the, that's the best that's benefit the of Vatican II. Yeah. Again, though, you don't need an ecumenical council to do that. A pope could just put out yeah. a series of encyclicals or or have a make a proclamation, right? But the point being is, whatever it is, this is why you have Vigano and you have Bishop Schneider of different opinions on what to do. Vigano yeah. basically says, throw it out, which right. is, a, people think that's a legitimate option, meaning it's, I mean, it's, there was a council of Pistoia that was basically thrown. The point is, is after 50 years from now, hopefully we're alive to see it and there's a great restoration in the church. It could be that the Pope could come down and say, hey guys, Vatican II, whatever was good in it, that was a mess. Yeah, the, the best example is actually the Council of the Lateran, which um, oh, right. I believe it was Pope St. Martin called it ecumenical, and then he just kind of rescinded it, and he just right. like let it go. Even though it was totally orthodox, he was just trying to impose that on the Eastern Church, but they are a bunch of, you know, this problem in the Eastern Church, so he acceded to, for the sake of peace. But That's what I mean. So anyhow, yeah. Because you could be, you could just say, because the fruits of the Second Vatican Council are bad. Objectively speaking, the fruits of the Second Vatican Council, whatever that means, because we don't know, are bad. So you could come by and say, enough we've had enough after vatican one we're just going to pretend that never happened and then we're going to finish the first vatican council properly um and and we're just going to make sure we have no errors that's possible or bishop schneider says you could have uh, a combing through of the texts and a fixing of them to me it seems like an endeavor that might be a little bit onerous for no reason because again there's nothing yeah. in there that's the novelty offers nothing but but in different interpretations. Yes, yeah, it's, it's difficult way out. I I I argue against many traditionalists that the Nouvelle Theologie movement was basically a very, in theory, it was a very good movement because in in theory it was restoring a greater emphasis in preaching of the Holy Scripture and of the Greek and Syriac fathers. In theory, all those in things theory. are great. Yeah. But it was used as a revolutionary movement because they saw weaknesses in, in the Neo-Thomism before the council, and then they used it as a revolution. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole problem. So, I mean, I love how the New Catechism quotes the Syriac liturgy. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful Catholic liturgy that's been forgotten. It's great to restore that and, and great, 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 um, you know, gain wisdom from mm -hmm. the Syriac fathers. Very, very neglected tradition. Um, it's the the Greek and Latin are not the two lungs of the church. There's also the Syriac. There's also the Gehaz. There's the Armenian, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, um, great question here from uh, Apostolato says, what if they clarify that God does God does will the plurality of religions? Yeah. Well, what would happen if your it, – it, it's a great canon in canon law that says nothing can be infallible unless it is manifestly so. So if the Pope says, I – we believe, we define, we declare that two plus two equals five. Mm -hmm. Would you submit or would you not? 
all our Catholic fathers would lead a revolt. But we are cowering under the false spirit of Vatican One. They'd be called schismatics. And we think that we think that the Pope can make two plus two equals five. We actually think he has that power because we're under the false spirit of Vatican One. So, yeah. Yeah. so th this is the problem: is that that's not that you know apostolato. That's not even possible. It's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible in, that that could happen. You know, but practically because, speaking. Well, practically, I mean, they would the, think it was. But yeah, let's say let's say they do that. Well, it's an if if the if the pope tried to define infallibly it would be manifestly in error and it could it's impossible to by canon law by canon's own standards that would be impossible because even if they did do that it would be manifestly in error manifestly you know, i might just we got to go in a sec here but <laughs> okay we have not enough time to go through this topic but but we're, we're, I'm just trying to illustrate the complexities, and I, 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 we just need to get away. People who want to restore tradition, you need to really restore tradition, which is really Saint Thomas, who is the master of argumentation. You know, he wants to prove a point. He first thinks of the the best argument possible against his point. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of intellectual life we need to restore. We can't just throw around these slogans, which are just mm -hmm. dumb little, you know. That they have no intellectual, they're just little things you get likes on you on Facebook and Twitter. And this is ridiculous. We need to get away from this. We need to grow up. We need to really recover true Thomism and true the true intellectual life and, and really deal with this problem as it needs to be dealt with. Also, you know, <clears throat> people are well, all the a lot of the doom and gloom prophecies we're not in the age of doom and gloom we're in the new springtime but the, the doom and gloom pro doom and gloom prophecies they deal with this idea that there's going to be a schism coming um that's a real possibility and i'm not trying to again not doom and gloom i'm just it's i can see from de facto let's just take because the bishop's conferences thing is the, is the is the is a problem because it makes it makes it seem to the faithful like there's a national church with their own doctrine doctrines for their country mm. and people live like that right so, and you see this was with communion in the hand was in some places because their bishop said so in other places, you know, and the idea of whether or not it's against the faith or harms your faith was always forgotten. It's like, well, our bishop said so in our conference, but um, there's already a de facto schism. What I mean by that is like, there's going to be a point soon. I wouldn't be surprised in my diocese, honestly, because we have a, such a progressive Bishop, I mean, the, the the letters shutting down the church. A friend of mine just had a correspondence with the vicar general the other day, and he was reading it to me. I'm like, this is not Catholic. I don't know what this is. It was really bad. It was really bad. And um, <clears throat> but but they have all the keys to all the buildings. They have all the they they tell you technically speaking, if you can put Catholic on your sign, if you you know if you say you're you know, there's going to be a point, and there already is for a lot of people where you're going to face a decision, not just SSPX. But you might be a diocesan priest, you might be a fraternity of St. Peter, you might be whatever. Where you're going to say, I'm going to have to basically give up my faith to stay with the diocese, in a sense, or I'm going to have to basically pull the fev. And it's not the first time in church history this happened, that was happening. St. Athanasius was not the only one, and there were other times this happened in other periods in history as well. So my point with this whole thing is, you just have to use your Catholic sense. You just have to use your Catholic sense. There is no teaching that says you have to be a Thomist in order to be a good Catholic. Okay. Good point. Obviously, yes. That's very important for people who should do that. But you can just be a pious woman who has a bunch of kids and prays a rosary. You know what's Catholic. You know what's not Catholic. That's And that's a grace of your baptism and your confirmation. God, mm -hmm. the Holy Ghost, 
is the fruits of the Holy Ghost are there. They are they're they're supra intellectual. You don't have to read about them. You just have to live them. And if you are living in a state of grace and praying, you will find your way through this whole thing. And it's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people because when Pope Francis speaks like this, it could be tomorrow where he comes out and says, X, Y, and Z has to happen or you're out of the church. But those yeah. things are manifestly wrong. What do you do? You have to right. use a Catholic sense. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. I want to point to people to two articles on the website, meaningofcatholic.com slash articles <laughs> under the current crisis. There's two articles that are, are relevant to a lot of these topics. This this question here from Anne that I'm going to address really quickly. We can close out and pray in, pray in our Father. Um, <clears throat> one is called On the Limits of Papal Infallibility, and the other, the other one is called When the Gates of Hell Prevail Over the Church. Because mm -hmm. Believe it or not, the gates of hell have prevailed many times over the church, but every single time the church resurrects as mm -hmm. if from the dead. Yeah, It actually happens many times in history. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we need to really face up to the fact that it, it does happen uh, in every human sense of the word, not spiritually, yeah. obviously, but um, happens that's like the whole point. And so I think what you're saying is, is, is so fundamental. But um, basically, Anne is bringing up and basically what they do, there has been no defined doctrine binding on the church since Vatican II, except with one can argue or uh, Ordinatio Sacra Datalis or yeah. Humanae Vitae, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Maybe those we could argue about those because those were traditional. Those 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 are yeah, easily, right. seen, and, and easily seen. I, I would argue that uh, Ordinatio Sacra Datalis is infallible. Um, based on the ordinary magisterium, because he I've does that as an example. clearly say that quite. I, so I believe I think that's quite clear that it is binding on the faithful. But that seems to be the only one. Even Humanae Vitae is not stated in a binding sense. No, uh, it, so it's not a binding act, even though it is still binding by based on just the universal teaching. But so they have not actually bound anybody to any any doctrines. Mm -hmm. All they do is past slogans, especially through the media. And this is a perfect example of that it's from communist. Anne right here. It's a communist this, psychology. Exactly. They, they pass slogans in the media, and this is what Anne brings out. So what about the claim that Jews still have a valid covenant of their own in spite of continuing to regulate Christ as the Messiah? So this there is a, a quotation from St. Paul in Nostra Aetate. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a quotation. So I we, nobody disagrees with quoting St. Paul, of course. But he says something that's not really clarified by the apostle himself, but kind of implies what Anne's saying. But certainly he would never teach that, obviously, St. Paul. That's a total yeah. error. He spent his whole life getting beaten by Jews for the sake of their baptism. But um, and I'm going to wrap up here, Kennedy. Sorry, we're going so long here. I know you got to leave. Um, but yeah. this particular doctrine came out of a pontifical uh, group that's in the Vatican that calls itself pontifical. That is literally a, just a group of scholars who say things literally. And then the news media, they put out something, the news media blows it up and everybody thinks that it came from like, the Pope. you might call them experts. <laughs> yeah. They're quote experts. So that, that error right there that from, and this is, this is exactly what they do. They basically just tell people a slogan. It gets blown up the media. And then what happens exactly what Lefebvre did. It says, okay, well, please clarify. I want a canonical trial. And they say, no trial. Two covenants, like two masks. It's from the experts. Just, just, just submit. But we're not going to have a con Just submit. Yeah. Abandon reason, submit. Mm -hmm. That's called Islam, people. Mm -hmm. Abandon reason and submit is the definition of Islam. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem, is that we've been living on a, like an Islamification of the magisterium. 
that's, that's voluntarism. It's voluntarism. Yeah, it's voluntarism. Yeah, that mm-hmm. more 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 speed uh, generally. But anyhow, we, we've gone way over time. Uh, Kennedy's got to go uh, do his duty. So let's offer up in our Father, uh, especially for fasting. Let's offer up. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take up the first crusade, gentlemen. This is your time. If you want to be a man of God, the time is now. And we are un- under demonic captivity. Will you rise to offer up your body and take up the cross for the sake of Jesus Christ? So let's pray. Nomine Patris et Fidi Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster quies in cedis sanctificetum nomen tuum. Adveniet regnum tuum fiat valentas tua sicut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie demitti nobis debita nostra. Sicut et nos demittimus debitoribus nostris. Ene nos unducas in tentationem se libera nos amalo. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fidi Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen.